Hello and welcome to episode 1175 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs for a Central Division show. We have a couple previews coming up later in the episode. We're going to talk to Pete Beatty about the Cleveland Indians and Rustin Dodd about the Kansas City Royals, but a bit of banter before that, I believe. Yeah. Okay. So Esteban Loaiza seems to be some sort of drug kingpin <laughs> from the Associated Press. Former all-star pitcher Esteban Loaiza has been arrested on suspicion of trafficking drugs after packages containing a white powder believed to be cocaine were found at a home he rented in Southern California, officials said Monday. 46-year-old former Major League Baseball player who, incidentally, recently showed up at White Sox Fan Fest. That's not in the AP article, but he was there. He was booked Friday on charges involving the possession, transport, and sale of 20 kilograms of suspected cocaine worth an estimated $500,000, according to the San Diego Sheriff's Department. This is one of those Mad Libs kind of headlines (laughs) that I just, uh, you know, random former baseball player from, like, 10, 15 years ago, but whose name everyone would kind of remember. Mm-hmm. Just like blank, random John Boy's citation baseball player arrested on charges of blank. Or I don't know. Look, I haven't thought this through, but I in no universe did I expect to wake up on a Monday morning reading that Esteban Loiza was addre- arrested because he, I guess he, he wouldn't be like, he wouldn't be a kingpin. I, over, I overestimate a kingpin wouldn't be caught under circumstances like this, nor would a kingpin only be arrested on charges of possessing 20 kilograms. That's nothing. That's like one New York Mets 1983 clubhouse worth for like a game. I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about cocaine, but Esteban Loiza, he's back and he's worse than ever. (laughs) Yeah. And as a number of people have pointed out, the man made almost $44 million playing baseball during his career. So One wonders why he felt it necessary to become a drug dealer in his retirement. Certainly could be circumstances we're not aware of here that led to him needing money, or maybe he just wanted more money. Lots of people who have lots of money are uh, very happy to try to get more of it. So very strange story. And I always liked the story of Esteban Loiza just on a baseball level because of how odd a, a career he had or really just an odd detour that his career took when he went from being a you know middling starter, a bit below average, a bit above average, right around average, to when he was in his age 31 season becoming a Cy Young runner-up because he suddenly started throwing this great cutter and was amazing and had a sub-3 ERA in 226 innings. And I like that story because, you know, for one, it's an illustration of how quickly a player, particularly a pitcher, can change his skill set and his performance. So he went from 5.71 ERA in 2002 to 2.9 ERA in 2003, and then he went right back to 5.7 ERA in 2004, even though he was somehow an all-star that season. I guess he had a good first half. But he's kind of like one of my go-to examples of just how players can change out of nowhere very dramatically and then not necessarily sustain that change in performance either and go right back to where they were before in a sort of flowers for Algernon kind of way. <laughs> so I don't know how he went from that to this latest phase of his career, but uh, I'm guessing it's a sad story of some sort. 
right from the the AP article, there's a, a little paragraph here. It says, Loise's agent, John Buggs, told the San Francisco Chronicle that he had no information about the arrest and that he had not spoken to Loise recently. He said that Loise had called his office early last week, but Boggs was unavailable at the time. I had not considered, why does Esteban Loise still need agent John Boggs? What is he? I, maybe agents <laughs> I book you for like fan fests, but otherwise, I always yeah. kind of assumed that when a non like Hall of Fame appearance kind of player retired that's it why would you have an agent but maybe the fact that Loiza was paying unnecessary salaries or commissions for things like an agent or what led him in the direction of selling drugs for a profit <laughs> well you need someone to bail you out i guess so <laughs> comes in handy now but yeah i don't know if we'll find out more about this story or not or whether it will turn into a, a tragic story i mean when you read it at first there's a, a level on which it's sort of amusing, like just to hear any story about Loiza after all this time is strange. And then to hear it in like a Breaking Bad Narcos kind of context, is you're even more taken aback. So I don't know if more details will come out about this, but like you, not something I expected to be discussing no. today. I think the instant we actually start to learn some background, it loses all comedic value because this yes. is fundamentally going to be a sad story about a disturbed individual. So right. as long as we only have the surface of Esteban Loiza, drug lord, that is what's funny. As soon as we know more, it's going to be sad. But then we can at least laugh about Zach Wheeler getting shots into his stomach for bones. <laughs> yeah, so there was a, a signing we should discuss, right? Do you want to go to that? I don't know if you have anything else to talk about, but there was actual baseball transaction news over the weekend. Yu Darvish finally signed with the Chicago Cubs for six years and guaranteed $126 million. This is a devastating blow to my chances in the offseason free agent contract draft, which I had a nice little lead over you. I think I was up by, I don't know, like $22 million something, and now I am down by 12 million or something in that vicinity because you picked up a a big chunk here because he was someone who MLB trade rumors had forecasted for a 160 million dollar deal he only got 126 million although that's just the guaranteed dollars and there are incentives in there that could bring it up to 150 and there's an opt out which is early on in the contract <laughs> and there's a no trade clause that seems to cover most teams if not every team so there is added value there for him but only the guaranteed dollars count for the purposes of our draft so this is a big blow to my chances i'm not gonna lie to you you could make up almost any numbers and i credit your honesty in suggesting that you're actually trailing by 12 million because i've completely forgotten everything except for the fact that i chose eric hosmer on my yes, team and i'm still <laughs> waiting on that mlb trade rumors put him at 132 million i think he'll exceed that anyway yeah You've got the under on Moustakis, I believe, also at 85, which oh. is looking pretty good for you. Wow, yeah, <laughs> so. you definitely didn't need to tell me that. Well, <laughs> I'm in trouble. <laughs> All this is tracked by John Chenier <laughs> at our drafts and competition spreadsheet, which you can find in the Facebook group, so I couldn't make it up if I wanted to. Are we in any way, John shouldn't, he, he implies that he's doing this as like a favor or just helping the podcast, but maybe we're actually providing analytical information to the Seattle Mariners for free. So <laughs> John, you should probably be a Patreon supporter if you're out there <laughs> listening to this. Uh, yeah, the, the Darvish news 
happened, which is uh, I am happy and sad. I am happy because the thing happened, and I'm I'm a little sad because now, as a consequence, I was hoping Darvish would go to the Dodgers because then it would it would almost have to set in motion a series of moves. And in, in fact, the articles have said that the Dodgers were involved on Darvish up until the end, and if they were going to sign Darvish, then it would require them to shed money. And so those are uh, those are more complicated transactions than I was looking forward to seeing how the Dodgers would go about trying to get rid of Matt Kemp. But now I'm not convinced that they're going. To, I mean, they let's face it, they should just designate him for assignment because he doesn't belong in that roster. But I was looking forward to the necessity of the Dodgers having to trade Matt Kemp because that would have been interesting. Instead, we just have a regular old free agent signing with a good team and the Dodgers seemingly don't have to do anything. And as a side effect of this, John Heyman, Scott Boris's spokesperson, suggested that the Cubs gave Jake Arrieta a last minute phone call to ask him if he would accept a similar deal to what Darvish was signing for when I almost can't believe a single word in that report because I don't think that that would have happened. But good on Scott Boris for being opportunistic about this one and trying to get word out about his go-nowhere client as a better pitcher was signing with a uh, a good team for a, a pretty good contract. Mm-hmm. So this, I mean, look, the Cubs were really good before they signed Darvish, but I think there was a perception that they had maybe dropped into a tier below the very, very top teams, the the Dodgers, the Astros, maybe the Indians. And I don't know if, if Darvish on his own moves them back into that top tier, but you could make a case that it does. I think their starting rotation was obviously kind of a question mark. You had Quintana, who's solid at the top, but then you had, you know, Hendricks, who it's hard to say exactly what he'll be. You had Lester, who's getting up there in years. There wasn't really a, an ace, I guess, and I don't know whether Darvish is an ace at this point either. I don't want to have the who's an ace discussion unless Andy McCullough is here, and he's not today. So, But, you know, he's really good, and the fact that he had the World Series, he had sort of left a, a sour taste in everyone's mouth where he was concerned, but he was quite effective last year, if not peak Darvish, Rangers Darvish from early in his career. He maybe hasn't been quite the same guy post-Tommy John surgery, but he's still very effective, and adding him into that rotation makes it certainly, if not a strength, not a weakness, and the Cubs remain very good at baseball, and so now they have him under contract for six years and won't have to worry about that rotation spot for a while, unless, of course, he gets hurt again. I mean, it's a it's a phenomenal-looking rotation. What I like, in, in, it's a pure coincidence, but the, the Cubs, it seemed like when they traded for Jose Quintana, that was going to be their long-term ad. They just kind of did it a, a few months early. But in Jose Quintana and Kyle Hendricks, the Cubs have two very good pitchers whose performance exceeds the quality of their stuff, at least classically. And then in Yu Darvish and more recently Tyler Chatwood, you have two pitchers who, based on their stuff, seem like they're better than they actually are. And which is not to say that Darvish isn't very good. He's a strikeout machine. But to me, he's a, he's always kind of remained. A, when he first came over and he first saw his stuff, I don't know about you, but I kind of figured, well, no one's ever going to hit him. <laughs> I just kind of figured yeah. he'd be almost like a, a perfect pitcher when he was healthy. And he's good, but he's kind of, you know, borderline number one, number two starting pitcher. Mm-hmm. But the Cubs clearly just love the strikeouts, love the stuff. They did the exact same thing with Tyler Chatwood, who, granted, that's a different level, but he's that was a pure stuff acquisition. So I just like the uh, the mix. And then to round it out, you have John Lester, who is, I don't know, basically exactly what he should be. So he's mm-hmm. he's the boring one, but also the steady good one. So yeah, Cubs, turns out, very good baseball team. About as good as the Dodgers right now. Probably a little step ahead of the Nationals, 
but uh yeah i'm i should say i'm also i i don't want to say i'm disappointed because i think that the cubs are good and i already thought that they were the best team in that division but i wanted to see a tighter race mm-hmm. so now i don't know how the cardinals or brewers are going to respond the cardinals signed bud norris which okay and the brewers they're they're going to look for a starting pitcher maybe they could jake arietta even though i doubt it but Right now, I don't know, maybe the American League East looks like the tightest division between the top two teams, but the Central was closer, and then the Cubs got the best pitcher on the market. So I'm a little bit disappointed because I would have liked something tighter looking from the start. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of how the Cubs have built these recent rosters. They haven't been able to develop much pitching homegrown. I don't know. Part of that is maybe a failure to develop. Part of it is just a strategic choice to prioritize hitters in the draft. And so they've ended up in this spot of having to sign free agent pitchers or trade for pitchers from other organizations, which, of course, they've had a lot of success doing. And you keep kind of expecting them to maybe trade from this surplus of position players. Of course, they traded Castro last winter, but they still seem to have too many guys for too many positions and guys who are not playing perhaps the position where they're the most valuable. And you could certainly make a case for trading either Russell or Baez or Almora or Schwarber or Hap or, you know, one of these guys because all the pieces don't really fit into the roster, into the starting lineup on any given day but they seem to prefer to just stockpile those guys. We don't have to talk about this at length because we'll probably be getting to the Cubs team preview podcast before (laughs) long, so we can get into that then. But they do seem to prefer to just spend for starting pitching and not trade from their strength of uh, position players. And thus far, that's worked out fine for them. Yeah, I mean, this is the whole thing we talked about years ago, or not you and I specifically, but the general baseball conversation where people were like, well, would you rather do the Cubs develop position players to rebuild or the Braves develop pitchers rebuild? That was like the whole black and white premise of, look, you know what I'm getting at. I'm not precise with my words right now, but mm-hmm. it was Cubs hitters or Braves pitchers. That was a conversation. People were asked to pick would you, which one would you prefer? So, of course, it turns out the Cubs haven't developed many pitchers yet because that just wasn't part of the plan this they were always going to have to acquire them and they have been able to do so and i'm usually not one to arrive at strong conclusions but i'm going to uh, i'm going to arrive at one now if you are prepared i think mm-hmm. i think that the cubs rebuild has gone better than atlanta's <laughs> yeah it's pretty controversial but uh i'm with you <laughs> and i guess well actually now now that i remember maybe it was the cubs versus the mets look i don't know the mets and the being built around pitchers and the cubs being built around hitters either one you pick but uh in either case the cubs have gone better because it turns out not to draw too much from a sample size of one but it turns out hitters a lot more reliable than pitchers mm-hmm All right. Well, speaking of teams that built with pitching, we will take a quick break and we'll be back in a moment to talk to Pete Beatty about the Cleveland Indians. Is a hell of a lot of waiting time. 
Alright, so we are now about to preview the 2018 season of the Cleveland Indians, and to do that, we are joined, as we have been for past previews, by Pete Beatty, who teaches creative writing at the University of Alabama. He has done some of his own creative writing, perhaps some less creative writing as well, also some editing, and he is an Indians fan, which is his main qualification for this preview segment. Welcome back, Pete. Hey guys, how are you? Doing well. So I was just reviewing the transaction log for the Cleveland Indians since last year, and it took about 20 seconds or so. And Mm -hmm. the highlights of it are mostly what they've lost. They did sign Yonder Alonso, who was replacing Carl Santana, and that's about it. There's some minor league moves in there that maybe we can touch on but don't necessarily need to. They lost Mickey Calloway. We can talk about that maybe, but... I don't know, should we start with Carl Santana? Because he was obviously a a longtime player for the Indians and perhaps an underappreciated player, both from afar and by Indians fans themselves, it seemed like. Like he he certainly got a a lot less attention and maybe contributed less to their recent run of success than some of their high-profile pitchers and Lindor and the like, but he was kind of a consistent driver for the Indians for a number of years there, you could really count on him to do his thing. Yeah, that's true. One other uh, off-season thing is that uh, Chief Wahoo retired with a, a nagging, <laughs> yes. uh, nagging racism injury, <laughs> which was nice. The uh, yeah, Santana was, uh, and I'm definitely guilty of this at times. He was really good. He just didn't have a sexy batting average. He walked a lot, and he sort of he wasn't great when he first moved to first. And I think a lot of people refuse to forget those initial sort of things. But um, yeah, I was very bummed when I saw he went to the Phillies. That one, kind of, it was sort of like a, it was like civil war reenactment of the Jim Tony signing from, uh, from 15 years ago. <laughs> but I love Santana. He seems, he was, uh, he seemed like a good clubhouse guy. And yeah, weirdly that one kind of got me in the, in the feelings when he left. Cause he was yeah. the, we got him for Casey Blake, which is one of like the all time great, dumb, <laughs> dumb Dodger trades. I'm just like, yeah, we'll give away this really good, sort of hitting catching prospect for a season and a half of a guy who looks like Ted Danson. (laughs) So did they need to do anything else? Like, were you waiting and hoping for them to do something? I mean, this is a team that won 102 games that had a Pythagorean record of 108 and 54. They didn't have a whole lot of holes. They, you know, just looking at the projections, it doesn't seem like anyone's really hot on their heels here. So were you kind of okay with them mostly standing pat this winter? Yeah, I mean, it seems like they just got to play their cards. Terry Francona consistently gets more out of the teams. than this. He, he seems to have a, a, a repeatable skill of managing well. I, I was kind of hoping they would hold on to Jay Bruce or do something. I'm not a yonder Alonzo believer at all. It seems like we maybe just signed a guy based off him being hot for six weeks at the beginning of the season. But there's a conspiracy theory that I am starting to believe in, which is that the Indians are going to trade for Manny Machado because Yonder Alonso is his brother-in-law. It's happening. It makes sense, man. Who says no? We trade like Tristan McKenzie, uh, maybe one of our catcher, like uh, what's his name, Mejia, and I think that's it. That gets us Manny Machado, right? <laughs> but do the Indians have anyone who can pass, say, Peter Angelo's physical exam? Does the world uh, have anyone who could? <laughs> probably not. Maybe like 
I don't know. The Cleveland Clinic is really a pretty world-class healthcare, so it is entirely possible. No, yeah, I think standing pat seems fine. I was bummed that Mickey Calloway left because I think he was part of the bullpen as much as the starting rotation. He was just getting guys to pitch as well as they can. You know, the starting pitching is really volatile, you know, and last year I think that was one of the better possible scenarios you could have Carrasco healthy all year, Kluber bouncing back from a back injury, Trevor Bauer somewhat inexplicably finishing with the numbers that he had, even though at every moment I was mad at Trevor Bauer, even when he was striking out, you know, 200 guys in 175 innings or whatever. <laughs> Can you imagine, <laughs> just sticking sticking with the same theme, can you imagine a player on the Indians or any team, but let's stick with the Indians, your team, that you could probably go from liking to hating or hating to liking quicker than you probably could Trevor Bauer? Like, is he the most on the precipice of fan emotion player that exists in the league? For me, it's hard to like, Bauer is hard to speak on without bias just because he's such a jackass. Uh, <laughs> like, he's sort of getting in fights with people on Twitter. And uh, lest we forget, he sort of cut most of one of his fingers off during the playoffs two years ago playing with a drone but yeah he'll look unbelievable for seven innings and then just start nibbling and making trevor bauer face and yeah i've said this before but they could literally trade him for uh the best pitcher on somebody else's triple a team and i'd be completely fine with it even though it's manifestly a bad baseball move and he's still only like 26 yeah, Trevor Bauer drives me insane. You mentioned Callaway. I mean, there's a limit to how much we can tell what a pitching coach does, but what was his reputation? Like, did he have a, a one weird trick to fix pitchers kind of thing like Ray Searidge had the reputation for having for a few years in Pittsburgh? Or was there something in particular that the Indians' great crop of pitchers would credit him for? Or is he just one of those guys who, like, takes each person individually and works with their strengths. I mean, to the extent that we can tell, what are they losing in Mickey Calloway? Good first name. I feel like Mickey is a very trustworthy first name. Yes. He don't see as many Mickeys as he might, as he used to. I guess it seemed like he was, uh, I can't speak to the sort of psychodynamics of the Indians uh, (laughs) bullpen, but it seemed like he was good at sort of working with with guys and, and, and just breaking through whatever it was that was preventing them from being their best. Carrasco is a guy who took forever to find it. We got him for Cliff Lee a long, long time ago, and he was pretty much written off as a head case, just somebody who just couldn't figure it out. And Callaway helped him. It seems like he just sort of got guys to throw strikes consistently in places where people don't hit the ball hard, which is maybe saying that is a lot simpler than actually doing it. Whatever it is, it's just like pitchers keep consistently. I mean, did someone named Tyler Olson had an ERA of zero for the Indians last year? I watched, I think, part of every single Indians game last year, and that guy definitely didn't exist at any point during the season. <laughs> he was like added back in, like uh, the special edition of Star Wars, like the Job of the Hut CGI. <laughs> It's been a volatile couple seasons, of course, for the Indians in 2016, losing the World Series, and last year, losing the series advantage and going down to the Yankees. But at the same time, of course, the Indians had the asterisk longest ever winning streak, 22 games. We don't have to talk about whether that was historical. It was good enough. But how, as a fan, now that you have a little bit of the benefit of, of distance... What the Indians achieved in winning 22 consecutive games, no matter what, that's something that at most one other team ever has done. 
How how does that achievement rank for you, given what the Indians didn't actually accomplish as the final winners of either of the past two seasons? Uh, I mean, the funny thing is the Indians won, was it 14 in a row in 2016? So they broke their own franchise winning record two years in a row. It doesn't, I don't know. Regular season baseball just doesn't actually matter that much. I, I love it, but it's more like, uh, it's like a piece of furniture more than like something that I, you know, I don't think about the chairs I'm sitting in all that much. You know, I might stop every once in a while to appreciate them. But the 22 game winning streak, I was ready for it to be over around 10. It's just like, okay, fine. Let's save some some of these wins for later. But it, it was exciting. There's sort of a chip on the shoulder, I think, of all Cleveland sports fans, even after the Cavs won a championship of just like, I used to, when I was growing up watching SportsCenter, back when that was a thing people did, Cleveland highlights would always be relegated to like the the third, you know, trimester of the show or whatever, and not in the pregnant sense, more in the just like, we're going to show one clip from this thing. So it's always fun to see the Indians, you know, people be forced to remember that they exist, which actually people in Cleveland have a hard time with too, as far as actually going (laughs) to the games. It's just one of those things where, you know, they have a solid window. I think next year is absolutely, the window is still open, but it was wide open last year, wide, wide open. They were, I think they look like the best team in baseball and they forgot to beat the Yankees a third time, which is a downer. It's, I'm still like blunted off. So coming off of, nearly winning a World Series of taking the Cubs to Game 7. Attendance did improve, and of course the Indians were one of the best teams in baseball also. So they went all the way from, what, 13th in attendance in the American League with uh, about 1.6 million fans in the 2016 season to 11th last year with a little over 2 million fans. So (laughs) is there any additional room for growth there? I mean, again, coming off how great a season they just had with another really good season expected. Can they go higher than that? Can they crack the top 10 in attendance in the league at least? And if not, why not? I don't know, honestly. I mean, I think you have to shave Oakland and Tampa Bay off those rankings anyway. So we really only beat (laughs) maybe the White Sox, I'm guessing. But uh, at this point, I think it would be reasonable for, uh, you know, a Indians front office person to say like, hey, what what else do you want us to do besides win the World Series? I would honestly, and this is maybe just me being a pessimist or, or looking for the, the worst in people. I think there is going to be um, some backlash from ditching Chief Wahoo and the attendance will actually dip a little bit. Not massive, but I think there will be a little bit of animosity. And the, there's this narrative that dates all the way back to like the trading Roberto Alomar for Matt Lawton right after Shapiro joined the team that the the Dolans won't spend, even though the payroll is like $130 million now. I think this offseason, having a quiet offseason, probably reactivated some of that perceived trauma on the part of uh, you know the same people who thought Carlos Santana was bad because he didn't hit 300, which is all to say it's probably fine. The stadium... Usually you can't tell the upper deck is completely empty when you're watching on TV, which is sort of all I ask for. <laughs> Given the core of the Indians roster now, you you could draw some parallels if you wanted between them and the Astros, where arguably the two most important players on the Astros would be Correa and Altuve. And you look at the Indians and you've got Ramirez and Lindor. Of course, I don't mean to overlook Corey Kluber or any of the other starting pitchers. But in any case, we've got Ramirez and Lindor. Is there, from from the overall 
a fan perspective. So now you're considering both value and just, you know, personality, likability, all those different things. Is there any twosome in baseball for which you would trade Jose Ramirez and Francisco Lindor? Or are you absolutely content with what the Indians have in the middle? If anything happened... I'm I'm getting I'm already sort of preparing myself for Lindor leaving just because it the sort of scuttlebutt got out last year that the Indians offered a you know nine figure contract and he he declined to sign it, which makes me think that he it might take more than the team has to bring him back. But that said, if Jose Ramirez does not play every game of this extension as as an Indians as a spider, I may just move to a monastery in the mountains. He's the greatest thing ever to happen. And oh, I need to recruit all of the listeners. If anybody is fluent in like Dominican Spanish, I have been trying to figure out what his Twitter name means for like a year. It's uh, Mr. Lapara, L-A-P-A-R-A. And I have no idea what it means. I've been talking about this with various people who actually like speak Spanish. And they're just like, I've never heard that word. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> so if anybody knows, please tell me. Also, you should follow him on Instagram. He is amazing. <laughs> Are you like uneasy at all about the fact that so much of the team's success is founded on pitching? I mean, not entirely. Obviously, we just talked about Lindor and Ramirez, so it's not as if they're entirely pitching-centric in the way that maybe the Mets have been in the last couple of years. But still, like in 2016, for instance, you saw what can happen when you know most of your starting rotation falls apart right at the wrong time of the season, whether through drone-related injuries or actual natural baseball activities. Does that worry you at all when you have like a maybe the best rotation in the league or close to it but also the fact that having pitchers who are good is is always scary because you never know whether they will continue to be good yeah i mean i sort of wanted carlos carrasco to be put like straight up like put in protective custody starting in like (laughs) august of last year just like take him to a hotel don't tell anybody where he is you know make sure he doesn't get fat on room service just like get him some exercise after what happened last year. But also, you know, when uh, God promised Noah that he would never destroy the world by rain again, he would destroy it by fire. I feel like in 2016, we were told that it's possible to almost win the World Series with literally just Corey Kluber and nothing. Just people like Josh Tomlin's jersey and hat was was our starting, the rest of the starting rotation. So if that's possible, then it's just, it's hard to get mad about the fragility of the Indians sort of roster composition, just because this is the only way I think this team can be good for this long is you have to have controllable, a bunch of arms and stuff. I am, I do, I sort of have a inside out worry, which is that we're going to trade Danny Salazar for sort of like 90 cents on the dollar, 80 cents on the dollar, and then he's going to turn into an amazing pitcher, mm-hmm. you know, actually kind of figure it out, but also maybe not. A great test case maybe for the uh, the dawning StatCast era is that because of StatCast and almost exclusively because of StatCast, we're aware of Yandy Diaz. Yandy <laughs> Diaz, of course, batted 179 times last year in the majors, hit fine. But uh, for those in the StatCast know, if you will, he's known for his extremely good exit velocities and his extremely low launch angles. He is a ground ball hitter, hits the ball hard. So last year, um, from a StatCast perspective, really interesting. From a baseball perspective, he slugged 327. 
What what is Yandy Diaz? You mentioned you're not a Yandy Alonso believer. Actually, was your word, so I'm just gonna <laughs> stick with the believer here as long as we're being topical. In 2018, are you a Yandy Diaz believer or are you uh, a skeptic that he can actually do what Statcast seems to suggest he could be capable of doing? So I think one thing that's important to know about Yandy Diaz is that he is just yoked, like absolutely <laughs> ripped, sort of to the point where it's clearly like his arms are so big that they can't actually be used properly <laughs> or like they don't fit around the rest of his body. Um, and I think that's why he hits so many uh, worm burners as they would say in golf is because like his arms are too big to actually get in the position where you would want them to, to hit, uh, to sort of get, get the high uh, launch angles. I just Googled him and found his gym pictures and it's like almost <laughs> It looks like some sort of morph or something. It's like grotesque. No, yeah. He looks like, he does not look like a baseball player. He <laughs> looks like a weightlifter. Hold on. Where's where's the, where's the difference between yoked and jacked? Uh, Yandy Diaz, I think, is the difference. <laughs> <laughs> I would say, but like, this is like more than Puig. Like Puig is a tank. Like he's a really big guy, but like that's not how big your arms are supposed to be. Like look at his arms. <laughs> What's less natural, Yandy Diaz's arms or Mike Trout's neck? <laughs> no, see, I mean, I don't know how much time you've spent in South New Jersey, but that's what people's necks look like there. <laughs> <laughs> so the exit velocity, I guess, is legitimate. <laughs> but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he looks like he's wearing shoulder pads or something if you see him with a jersey on. Yeah, I mean, he, in, in in uniform, I think because he wears like one of those compression shirts underneath, you just can't tell how ridiculously jacked he is. But uh, he's a lot of fun. I mean, he seems like somebody who, if he if he finds the keys, could be. He, I mean, he's not going to be an all star or anything, but the power is he, there's clear power potential there. There were moments when he hit the contact was very very hard. I can tell you without Statcast, I'm sure this has come up in other conversations or elsewhere on the on the podcast. But the phrase like X of the Statcast era is just driving me insane. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think the era has to be a little longer before we start using that so much. <laughs> yes. How about just like since 2013 or whatever yeah, it was? Can 15. We yeah. Say that it's worse. Yeah, yeah 2015. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what are you expecting, if anything, out of Michael Brantley? Uh, yeah, he wasn't bad last year when he played, mm -hmm. but I think he had another surgery this offseason. You know, they picked up the option, I think, because it was really cheap. You know, this wasn't something where it was $15 million or whatever. I honestly, I'd be fine. Or I, I think realistically, like 80 solid games might be nice. And sort of, a, I don't think we're ever going to see 2015 Michael Brantley again. That was probably his the best he's ever going to be on the field, but he takes, you know, he takes his walks. I think he's just a, he's got a great eye, but the power, his power was always kind of right on the cusp of, you know, doubles and, and he had just started to unlock it. So I think he'll basically be a, a good platoon outfielder is what I would hope for. It helps that Bradley Zimmer, despite sort of having a very mathlete sounding name, is um, sort of unbelievably good in center field, covers like freakish amounts of ground. Yeah, I was... I was curious what the re what your read is on Bradley Zimmer because of course this uh, the season before we saw the uh, the big breakthrough debut attempt from Tyler Naquin who uh, <laughs> who almost immediately disappeared 
And I, if memory memory serves, I think he did pretty well in the minor leagues last year, but he didn't come up and play. So is just is Zimmer the like is Naquin not even in the plans anymore? Is he just basically gone as far as the Indians are concerned? No, uh, just to give myself a pat on the back, I think I did say on this podcast last year the finishing runner up in the 2016 Rookie of the Year competition will wind up being Tyler Naquin's all time greatest achievement <laughs> the um i mean they just figured out people figured out they just can't deal with high strikes I, I bradley zimmer seems good you know he's i don't know if he's ever going to be a plus offensive player or you know somebody who hits for a meaningful amount of power but he is really fast so i mean like really really like sprinter fast i think he actually challenged that guy who wears like a weird outfit and races around the outfield fence in atlanta oh billy hamilton <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he challenged the the freeze to a race and mm-hmm. uh which by the way probably was the highlight of the brave season last year was that guy yeah. running around the outfield fence yes. during the seventh inning or whatever i, I like zimmer i want to see how his bat sort of plays out and whether he does find a little bit of power but even if he doesn't he's really i don't think people realize how many insane like running backwards flying superman catches he had last year you know indians radio guy tom hamilton who it doesn't take a whole lot for him to yell like he's going to have a heart attack. But there were times when Bradley Zimmer did things. And I was actually worried about Tom Hamilton's sort of like having a cardiac infarction of some sort. I just Googled a, a picture. Apparently, the Indians rookie hazing last year, late last year, was to have the rookies dress up as superheroes. So they have Yandi Diaz dressed up as the Hulk, which obviously is appropriate, except that they have him in a Hulk costume. Which seems totally unnecessary. Just <laughs> just go no costume. He already looks like the Hulk. <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like the equivalent of uh, of wearing one of those padded muscle shirts when you're right. already very large. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't doesn't need the help. Yeah. So since you mentioned Wahoo, I guess we can go there. Jeff and I talked about it when the news came out that Wahoo would be retired in 2019. But to get an actual Indians fans perspective on this, I mean, how embarrassing was it to have Wahoo associated with the team for so long? And is there any shred of you that can understand the perspective of a fan who doesn't see what the big deal is and thinks it's just part of being a fan of the team and that the rest doesn't matter? Yeah, absolutely. I could put myself into the mindset of somebody who who did not see Wahoo as offensive, which was really, there's two things going on there. One was it had ceased to be a symbol of anything but Cleveland to them. Uh, you know, if you grew up with that, that was the logo that your mom and your dad and your friends, that was the logo that you wore to signify your team. I totally understand it. That's not to say that I agree, but I do understand where people are coming from. I think there's a contingent of people who also it's just like, you can't tell me what to do about anything. So if you tell me water is wet, I will proceed to tell you why it isn't, which, you know, that's not native to Cleveland or anything. It's a relief, I have to say, but it's also, you know, what's the phrase that people are using on the internet now? It's sort of like a virtue signaling thing or whatever, where, you know, it's nice that my baseball team doesn't have a sort of shriekingly inappropriate and offensive and you know antique racist logo anymore uh, i should probably change the name too but it's sort of like you know something's offensive when it's reached the point that a large a billion dollar corporation has to quietly retire it you know not out of like moral courage or anything but just like you know 
you should probably stop doing, you know, having Sambo or, you know, a drunken Irish guy or, you know, whatever on our hats, which, yeah. I mean, they didn't really even have the moral courage to stop selling Chief Wahoo merchandise, uh, which I think tells you something, but it's a step forward. I mean, it's, you'd have to be pretty, I think a lot of people were sort of saying in the very narrow sort of Indians fan world that I live in, we're saying like, oh yeah, but it's, why did it take so long? It's a good thing. It's just like something, the world is slightly less crappy now that we don't have to look at Chief Wahoo every day. And that's, God, it's just a relief. I can't wait until 2019 and it's actually, actually gone. Mm -hmm. Do you have a preference for team name if that ever does change? Spiders. Absolutely. The Spiders. Yeah. Who are like the most hilarious, like sort of plot arc of any team ever. Mm -hmm. The owner's owned another team in the league and traded all the good players to that team. (laughs) 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 I guess we should ask a Jason Kipnis question since he'll be back at second base. Will you miss the Jason Kipnis center field experiment? You know, after Francona put Carlos Santana in left field for the first time in a world series game and it was fine. I just reached the point where any, they, they could have put like made Lindor play first base and moved you know, Edwin Encarnacion to center field. I would say, yeah, let's, 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 uh, let's see how this goes. Kip, this is, I don't know. I feel bad because he's so, he's been so good when he's healthy. He finds a way to be good. And he's already, a lot of Indians fans are sort of groaning that he's going to be back at second base. They want Jose Ramirez there, but I think it should be good. I, I honestly, maybe this speaks to my, you know, individual perversion as a baseball fan, but I sort of like watching guys play out of position. Although, you know, ask me again if it's like a playoff game and it matters and Jason Kipnis is playing catcher or something. <laughs> right. And the bullpen also lost a, a mainstay in Brian Shaw, but it seems to be solid otherwise. I mean, we talked so much about the bullpen this time last year and, of course, in the preceding playoffs. And then it was more or less a, a normal bullpen, I guess, last year. I mean, Andrew Miller got hurt for a little while, came back, was fine, but they didn't really push the envelope in the ways that we had forecast they possibly could coming off the 2016 postseason when they were forced to experiment and innovate by the shorthanded literally starting rotation (laughs) so were you surprised at all that that the bullpen looked as as typical as it did or did you always think that that was kind of a a one-month weirdness yeah i mean i think in i vividly remember when uh David Ross or whoever it was took uh, Andrew Miller deep in game seven of the world series, which I'm nowhere near over, uh, <laughs> you know, 18 months later or whatever. Miller was completely cooked by the end of that series. Cause you just can't. And so was a role Chapman, by the way, relievers, just no one actually doesn't matter if you're stressed out can pitch that much on a, you know, every two out of every three days thing. And I think it speaks to just sort of common sense and the laws of physics and, you know, human biology that Andrew Miller wasn't suddenly going to become this kind of, you know, I pitch four innings every time we're, we're winning kind of guy. Uh, I am very sad to see Brian Shaw go because he was like, he was like a cosplay of a guy from 1995 with his goatee (laughs) and his sort of like, uh, he always seemed vaguely clammy. But he was great. Brian Shaw was actually awesome. He was so good all the time. And I think, you know, Dan Otero is at this point, you know, when he first was starting to pitch well, I was like, you know, this guy, who's that? But now he's, I think he's just earned a spot to be like the, you know, seventh and a half inning guy because we have essentially two closers. All right. So we'll wrap up as we always do by asking for a win total prediction. I'm a little bearish. I think the Indians are going to win 89 games. 
Hmm. All right. Is that uh, because of any particular weakness that you perceive or someone in the division you're worried about? No, I think it's just, it's like the ideal law of gases or whatever. No one's going to push them in the central and they'll just, you know, they'll kind of win enough to get into the playoffs and avoid the wild card game. Mm -hmm. Did somebody push them last year? I don't remember that happening. The twins. Yeah. The twins were, uh, (laughs) were sort of in vague smelling distance until like uh, end of August. Take them longer than expected to pull away, but they eventually did. I've actually completely forgotten about this. I do believe you. (laughs) Yeah. The twins played in a playoff game last year. I think. (laughs) Yeah. Technically. Well, they had they had a half inning. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. You can find Pete's work at PeteBeatty.org. I continue to be amused that he is an organization. You can also I'm totally an organization. Find him on Twitter at Pete Beatty. You can be taught by him if you attend the University of Alabama. I don't know if that's in it's itself a, a reason to attend the University of Alabama, but if you happen to be there, <laughs> don't miss him. Pete, thanks. Always a pleasure. <laughs> Thanks, guys. (laughs) Okay, that was the team with the best projected record in the AL Central. We will now take a quick break, and we'll be back to talk about the team with the worst projected record in the AL Central with Rustin Dodd of the Kansas City Star. All right, we are back, and we are joined now by the Kansas City Stars Royals beat writer Rustin Dodd, who just recently arrived in Surprise, Arizona, where the Royals are recently arrived or are just about to arrive. Hey, Rustin, how are you? Hey, guys, how are you doing? All right, we are talking to you on the eve of pitchers and catchers officially reporting, so maybe it's too soon to ask, but have you seen anyone who appears to be in the best shape of his life? I've seen a few. I was I, so I went over to the complex for the first time this morning, and there was I would say a few guys looked pretty good. They you know they looked like pretty svelte in good shape. I will say I think you know, they're they're reporting tomorrow, and I think most of the Royals pitchers have been down here for about a week. So I find like those dates become more and more meaningless, like as we go. throughout time more or less people show up like on february 1st or the few days afterwards and then they're just here so yeah i would be mr mandatory reporting date if it were up to me i'd i'd be strolling in there at the last possible second i want my off season give me my time off it would probably send the wrong message to everyone but that's what i would try to get away with (laughs) hashtag there is no off season right (laughs) there is no season yeah (laughs) I have read that Jorge Soler may be in the best shape of his life. I don't know if you've seen him yet. I have not. I don't know if he's if he is here. I did not see him today, but I think he is. Uh, he's lost twenty pounds reportedly mm-hmm. and is in in is in good shape. So we we shall see. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we'll ask about him. But I want to start with the question that I hope will not be rendered obsolete by some breaking news between the time that we talk to you and the time this is posted. But all winter long, one of the storylines surrounding the Royals obviously has been the free agents. They seemed poised to lose. We know that Lorenzo Cain is gone. We know that Alcides Escobar is back. But because the 
Moustakis and Hosmer free agencies have been so strange, they are still seemingly in the running here, even though signing a, a big money free agent doesn't seem to gel perfectly well with where they are kind of in the competitive cycle. So I know you spoke to Dayton Moore recently about this. I assume he didn't divulge all of the details that we would want. But what do we know about the Royals ongoing pursuit of either or both of those guys? Sure. I've, so the Royals have been pretty consistent all offseason in that they've kind of named Eric Hosmer as their number one priority. And, you know, it's it's an interesting position there. And obviously, because they're publicly going into a rebuild while trying to sign a franchise cornerstone for probably over $100 million at least. Um, yeah. So it's like, it's an odd, it's kind of counterintuitive. It doesn't maybe make consistent sense for where they are as an organization, but for whatever reason, their, their reasoning, and this is kind of what they've said publicly and kind of maybe the most generous way to read their position is that they feel obviously a connection to Eric Hosmer. They kind of view him as an important piece of the franchise and what they've done over the last six to seven years. And I think they think they, they could sign him to like a seven-year deal and I'm not sure if this is realistic or not, but potentially he could still be a valuable first baseman on the second half of that contract when they are hypothetically trying to win again. So that's been sort of the their reasoning for going after him. And obviously the market just really hasn't developed for him. Or I guess maybe, maybe it has developed in ways that many people thought it would and when there weren't really that many teams interested. But at this time, it obviously seems like it's the Royals and the Padres who are still the most interested. And we will see if anybody, you know, goes up in their offer to get this deal done. But I do think that the Royals are well positioned if it's just if his choice is just to go back to Kansas City or go to San Diego. Uh, And I think maybe that's why he's still a free agent. Obviously, he's not been happy with the deals that have been presented him to this point. But I, I do wonder if he's been holding out for another potential offer from a team that is more well positioned to win. That's just my sort of instinct. But I do think if if it does come down between the Royals and the Padres, I do think that the Royals are more set up to to retain him and and have him for the next seven years. You uh, you're not gonna believe this, but we do have breaking news: the San Diego Padres have placed Jose Torres on the restricted list. So <laughs> nothing to do with Hosmer. But do you, so Hosmer clearly that he he has some sort of leadership value to the Royals, or at least he's perceived as such. But has has been also touched on. Mike Mustakis is out there, and you don't at least. Publicly, I haven't observed the same kind of sense of a of a Mustakis and Kansas City reunion. Even though he is also fairly young, he would fill a hole. I mean, right now, what the Royals' corner infield is Chesler, Cuthbert, and Hunter Dozier. I think is the, correct. Yes, the current depth chart. So it it seems like it would be pretty easy to fit Mustakis in there. But is he is he on the radar for this team at all right now? Well, he hasn't been. Dayton Moore said it's been pretty public that Eric Hosmer is the priority. And that Mike Moustakis maybe had other priorities at the beginning of off of the offseason that didn't come to fruition. I think he might have been hinting at that the Los Angeles Angels ended up not being a place where he could go. And then there were a couple other places where it seemed like might be a fit and, and then they weren't. I think the with the Royals, the problem with Mike Moustakis is that I, I think they obviously see some intangible values in Eric Hosmer, the leadership, all those sort of kind of front facing things for an organization. He's sort of like the team spokesperson. He's very popular in Kansas City, all those sort of things. But I also think they maybe talk themselves into, or maybe that's not the right way to put it, but they see him as a better long-term bet. Whereas I feel like the Royals probably believe that Mike Moustakis is going to be a productive player for the next 
three to four seasons, you know, at, at, at best, I guess that maybe that's a harsh way to put it. But as he gets on the other side of 30, he's a year older than Eric Hosmer. So that's going against him. And maybe longevity wise, he projects as a player that won't quite last like like Hosmer will. At least that's one viewpoint. So I think they they're a little hesitant to pay Mike Moustakis for the next three to four years when those are likely going to be losing seasons in Kansas City and then feel like, okay, what's the value after that for a guy like Moustakis? So that would be, I think, why they're a little bit hesitant. And if they, I guess if, if they lose out on Hosmer and the dollars come down enough, they would probably be interested in a deal with Moustakis, I guess. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like they're significantly interested in that. Having seen Hosmer up close now for a while and, and how the fan base relates to him, do you believe that there is a, a significant value to him that is not captured by the basic stats, especially if he stays with the Royals? I mean, he's not going to make the difference between a playoff team and a non-playoff team for the next few seasons, presumably. So do you see it making a meaningful difference in ticket sales, in fan sentiment, in tutoring the next wave of young Royals? I mean, those are the things that presumably, if he is resigned at some point, we'll be hearing at the press conference. So how much stock do you put in all of that? Not a lot, but but I guess I put in... So I, I don't want to say that those things aren't valuable, because I do think that they have value. And he is a popular player in Kansas City. The Royals have cultivated a huge following over the last three to five seasons or however you want to look back. And I mean, if you look at local television ratings, they're the highest in baseball, at least per capita in cities. And so, yeah, there's like a lot of value in retaining a guy like that. On the other hand, is it going to make a huge difference in ticket sales? I'm not sure. And, you know, if you, I guess if you also, I mean, you guys have fan graphs and, and you guys know this better than anybody that sentiments on Eric Cosmo are widely mixed. And I think you can find those sentiments in the Kansas City fan base too, especially if you spend a lot of time on the internet. But so I, I think there is differing opinions even in the Kansas City market on Hosmer. But I guess if you're just going with the average fan that buys tickets and shows up to the stadium and wants to watch the players they're familiar with, I think there is a sentimental value that is maybe a little bit overblown if you really believe it's valuable. But I do think it's, I guess, there maybe a little bit. I acknowledge this is probably going to sound stupid, but the Royals are now entering into a rebuild. It's something that I think a lot of people have been able to see coming on the horizon. And as you you reflect, on the one hand, the Royals have put together five consecutive seasons where they've won at least 80 games. Most recently, they won 80, but they also made the playoffs just two times. Now, those are two very memorable playoff runs. But was there was five years the goal, five years of being sort of on the, the fringes of contention? Of course, they did win the World Series, but last year... Not really that close to the the playoff race the year before. It's, they were still several games out. With is there any sort of sense that maybe the peak didn't last long enough, or is this just strictly a classic case of flags fly forever and everyone's just happy with what was achieved? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a it's a good question because on the one hand, Dayton Moore's even talked about how they put so much into winning the World Series in 2015 that maybe they didn't do a good job of, of building something that was a little bit more sustainable. I do think, though, that the Royals were well positioned to maybe contend or play a little bit better than they did in 2016 and 2017, but for a couple of moves that just seemed like decent decisions at the time. First, signing Alex Gordon to a four-year $72 million deal, that seemed like a, a real, you know, seemed like a reasonable move at the time coming off the World Series. And that was a 
significant backfire. Uh, and then they went looking for a starting pitcher that could kind of help them sustain and bridge this. And they got one decent season out of Ian Kennedy, but they likely overpaid for him. They still owe him $49 million over the next three seasons. And that was not necessarily a deal that really paid off. And then there were also just a little bit of regression. Alcides Escobar would be one spot you could look at, and there were a few others. But they probably, you could you could say, if you were looking at their win cycle you know, over the last five years that they underachieved over the last two years, in part because of some poor decisions they made. But I think if you're looking kind of, if you're comparing them to, say, the Pirates, I guess they had pretty similar win cycles. The Royals just happened to go to the World Series twice and and win the World Series once, even though they could only get to the playoffs twice. You mentioned in there, Alex Gordon, and I could I could ask you a long question, but I'm going to ask you instead a short question. What happened? That is a good question. <laughs> I um, It's hard to say because when they re-signed him to that deal, the narrative built around Alex Gordon's career is that he is a hard worker. He keeps his body in fanatical shape. He doesn't ever eat sugar or like any of He's got one of those ridiculous diets. So it seemed like he was going to be a guy who was going to age well. And he's still a decent defensive player. He won a gold glove last year. Not that that's a good metric, but he was a, an above average left fielder last season, I think, by the metrics. But but for whatever reason, he had a uh, some injury issues in 2016 and seemed to kind of lose his swing. And then he became kind of a disaster in 2017. And uh, I think if you look at his, the most startling number is not necessarily his batting average. This was in the low 200s. It's his slugging percentage. I think he slugged something close to like 350 last season. So he's been... It's a little bit been a mystery on why he's not been able to adjust, but I think it's a huge combination of a little bit of physical decline mixed with maybe some stubbornness to adjust mixed with some maybe some mental frustrations that have you know compounded themselves over the last two seasons and then next thing you know he's just sort of a lost player at the plate for sure you mentioned the the rebuild are they publicly calling it that i know each team sort of has its own label that it applies to what it's doing are the royals just going with rebuild yeah they're they're kind of begrudgingly using those terms or 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 saying anything like that in part because I probably from a mostly from a PR standpoint and in part because I think they are I mean they're obviously actively trying to re-sign Eric Cosmer and they are you know they still have amazingly I think four starting if they if they re-signed Eric Cosmer they would have four starters still on their everyday roster from their World Series team so it's not like this team has totally been gutted but it does seem like there is a realistic kind of understanding around the organization that they are headed into a period where they need to rebuild their farm system which is also ranks among the worst in baseball and that they need to get, mm-hmm. you know, better assets for the future. And that's going to include losing a lot of games and maybe parting ways with some of those assets as they move forward. Yeah. And I mean, it's understandable that they find themselves here. I think I, I talked to Randy Gisarelli on the podcast, maybe late last year, and we were discussing this, but, you know, it took a long time for their prospects. They had that vaunted farm system. It took a while longer than expected for those guys to become productive big league players. Guys like Kane and Mustakas and Hosmer it didn't really come together immediately. And then they had these great teams that were built on speed and defense and contact, things that maybe don't age as well as some other qualities and they spent you know they signed guys they made the Johnny Cueto trade they traded prospects to try to win and so now they find themselves here and I mean this is sort of the cycle as we've historically looked at teams that have won and then lost this is what they go through and 
today, now that we're talking about tanking and rebuilding so much, we kind of group them in with all these other teams. But really, this is often what happens after you have your high, you have your low, because if you're the Royals, if you're not the Dodgers or the Yankees or a team that can just sort of spend to some level of competence year in and year out, it's really hard to win and also make sure that you have that next wave of great talent coming along. So, I mean, we could point to moves that they shouldn't have made and moves that they should have made. You know, maybe they should have made a bunch of moves at the deadline last year to try to jumpstart this process instead of going through it one more time. But that was defensible, I think. And I'm trying to put myself in the place of a Royals fan, but I don't know if I would feel like this is, you know, a lost opportunity or something that should be condemned so much as just this is sort of the inevitable byproduct of what was a really good few years. Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's three factors that go into their predicament right now, and two of them are maybe out of their control, or at least one of them was a, a positive. I mean, they did trade away quite a bit starting pitching talent for Johnny Cueto and Ben Zobrist. If they had Sean Manaya in their rotation right now, they would potentially maybe look a little bit better. Their pitching depth would be a little bit better. They parted away with, with a few other guys that could be, they would have some value, Brandon Finnegan, Cody Reed, I guess you could argue that. The other one, though, that we haven't mentioned it, and it obviously is kind of a tough thing to discuss from a baseball perspective, but they also lost Giordano Ventura last season, mm-hmm. and they had him sign through 2022 as a long-term rotation piece with a lot of upside. So that is something that you really don't replace. And then the other factor, which is in their control, is that they haven't done a, a, a good job of drafting in the first round over the last really five to seven years. And they just haven't really gotten a lot of value out of their high top draft picks and they really since 2010, 2011. And so when you add up all three of those things, you have a major league team that's getting older with not a lot of value and you have a farm system which ranks among the lowest in baseball. So some of it is of their own doing, but some of it is just, like you said, kind of the cycle for a small market team who pushes it all in for a few years to win a championship. And they did that. And now they're kind of where they are. It's funny, you you bring up the draft and uh, looking at the first round fifth overall pick from 2012, I see a Roto-Wire news report here from uh, uh, two weeks ago. Kyle Zimmer, parentheses arm, is back in full health and will be ready to participate in spring training. Kyle Zimmer at this point, he's, uh, he's 26 years old and last year he threw 36 innings. The year before that, he threw six innings. The year before that, 64. Year before that, five. Year before that, he did exceed 100. Is there any hope left at all in Kyle Zimmer? Have people moved on? I mean, at this point, is it a post-hype thing or just like a Brett Anderson sort of you're always going to get injured kind of situation? What is the organization's faith at this point in Kyle Zimmer? I mean, it's not significantly high. It's not very high. I, it's it's difficult. Jeff, forgive me for blanking on this name, but who was the Mariners high draft pick that um, could never get? Danny Holson, was that his name? Yeah. yeah. If was that? Okay, yeah. yes. <laughs> so I, I don't, I, I hesitate to bring him up, but I, I do feel like when I've read about Danny Holson's career, it does remind me a little bit of Kyle Zimmer's in that I've never interviewed Danny Holson. I, I've never met him, but I, he had seemed like a reputation as a very good guy who just had lots of bad breaks and was constantly injured and could not get healthy. And that's really been Kyle Zimmer's 
his deal. I mean, he's shows up to spring training every year with a smile on his face. He seems like he's in decent shape and with a talent and a decent fastball and good breaking stuff. And then his arm just does not cooperate. And it, it has kind of turned into a kind of an inside joke in Kansas city that now doesn't really actually seem to now it just sort of seems like a kind of a tired joke. You're kind of curious to see what Kyle Zimmer is going to do. And now I think the Royals are just hopeful to get really anything out of him, whether that's in the bullpen or, you know, really any arm, any innings at the major league level would probably be considered a success at this point. So we will see, but uh, they're certainly not projecting any sort of value out of him, I would, I would imagine in 2018, and they will take whatever they can get. Yeah, well, speaking of post-type guys who appear to be in decent shape, Jorge Soler, who we mentioned earlier, that seemed to be an example of a forward-thinking move when the Royals made it, trading fewer years of Wade Davis for more years of Jorge Soler, who didn't really seem to fit in in Chicago. And that just hasn't worked out in that his first season in Kansas City, he was hurt a lot. He didn't hit at all when he was healthy or nominally healthy. So now he seems to be a a swing retooler guy, seems to be a best shape of his life guy. What's the level of hope and optimism for him? Well, there's certainly hope. Yeah, he spent the offseason working out with a hitting instructor in uh, Florida who worked with Yonder Alonso last offseason. So I think maybe there is some hope that whether it's getting the ball in the air more or just working on his swing a little bit that he can be more productive in 2018. I think for the Royals, and this is, I guess it's sort of a realistic to where they are as a franchise is that they have him under contract for three more seasons at a reasonable rate. You know, on the other hand, they are going into this kind of period where they are not probably expected to contend over those three seasons. So it's weird to be thinking like this as an organization. I guess it's weird to maybe is for Royals fans to be thinking this way. But, you know, the best case scenario is probably for him to go out and have a great 2018 rebuild value. And then they could maybe take him to the market in next winter as a guy with two years of control left and maybe some value. And But they certainly need to kind of rebuild him as an asset, whether they want to keep him or shop him moving forward, because he certainly, whatever he showed as a a young player in Chicago with his ability to get on base and hit for some power and seem to have a good approach, he really didn't show any of it last season in the few times he was up with the Royals. With the Royals entering into a sort of rebuild, of course, even a long-term signed starting pitcher is more of a short-term asset than a long-term asset. This is a Danny Duffy question. When uh, Back in 2012, Danny Duffy signed a one-year contract to stay with the Royals, just a standard contract, and he tweeted out, bury me a Royal, and I think it was about two months ago. I think it was in response to uh, trade rumors trade chatter. Duffy repeated the expression on Twitter, bury me a royal. Of course, he's been very involved. We've seen him be very present, certainly in, I don't know what to refer to them as, but in celebrations of the Jordana Ventura's life, we've seen Danny Duffy have very intimate interactions with fans. He's been very present, beloved around the community, seems to also share love for the community. At the same time, Danny Duffy is clearly one of the most valuable royals who could be available. So I guess this is a little bit of a mirror of the Eric Hosmer situation because you have a guy who the team clearly loves and wants to keep even through the rebuild. But is is there a good answer of how you handle this when you have a player who's under control? Danny Duffy's got another four years with the Royals. He's good, loves it there, clearly doesn't want to leave. What do you do? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. And if you're dating more, I'm not sure exactly you're not in a good spot. I'll I'll put it like this. You mentioned all of Danny Duffy's relationship with Kansas City. Like I, I grew up in the Kansas City suburbs 
And people who are from Kansas City have a lot of pride. It's maybe it's a Midwestern thing. Maybe it's you know, all those sorts of things. But but Danny Duffy likes and loves Kansas City almost more than anybody who actually is from Kansas City. I'm like, he loves Kansas City more than anybody should. So yeah, they're, they're in a kind of a bind because he is a little bit of a fan favorite. There is more of a love affair with him as a player than maybe a lot of the players they've had in, in their organization. On the other hand, he's the perfect asset to go out and get some pieces for their rebuild because of the control and because his contract is relatively reasonable for a, a starting pitcher of his caliber. I think they obviously didn't find anything this offseason that they were willing to do. I think they were listening. But I do wonder that if he has a really strong first half and he still has three and a half years of control, if he's a guy they would uh, would be available at the trade deadline or next offseason as well. I, I really think that if Danny Duffy pitches well, you're just going to hear trade rumors until essentially he's he's dealt from Kansas City. I, I can't pretend to guess when that might be, but I do think that the the odds of him finishing out his contract in Kansas City are probably under 50%. So I would bet more likely than not that he is dealt at some point over the next two seasons or so, but we will we'll see how it plays out. So we've talked about the rebuild and we know that the payroll currently at least looks like it might be down about 30 million from last year unless there's some sort of big ticket signing in the next few weeks. So who are some of the names and faces that Royals fans are going to get to know this season more so than they have in the past? Guys who were just coming up, guys who were blocked in the past when they were really trying to win. Is Raul Mondesi one of those names and faces, or is he still blocked by Whit Merrifield and, and Alcides Escobar? But you know, just the, the crop of young guys who are going to be coming up and benefiting from some of the playing time opportunities that are there now. Yeah, I mean, Mondesi would be the obvious guy, and then they, they signed Alcides Escobar to a one-year deal, so I think he would will likely start the season in the minor leagues, and they're a little bit concerned with his durability and just want him to prove himself a little bit more in the minor leagues. I think they've also maybe listened on deals for Whit Merrifield as well. And there could be an opening there if they ever pulled the trigger. But right now they seem content with Escobar and, and Merrifield up the middle. Montessi is a guy to watch. What's what's interesting with the, where the Royals are right now is that they have a handful of young players who are going to play this season. Uh, Chesler Cuthbert will likely start at third base. Uh, Hunter Dozier, one of those first round picks who hasn't quite had an opportunity and has had some other issues, will likely be up with the team playing somewhere. We'll see where that would be. Bubba Starling, another first round pick, might have an opportunity if he performs at AAA to get his major league debut at sometime in the summer. But with a lot of these guys, and Solaire maybe would be in this group too, it's sort of a, I guess, Jorge, I also another guy, Jorge Bonifacio will be their starting right fielder and had a decent rookie season, a fairly strong, I guess, rookie season for maybe what they thought he was going to be. All those guys are sort of in the same predicament where you're not quite sure if they're part of whatever future, whatever the future looks like in Kansas City, but they all have, you know, enough talent to where they could be maybe like a supplemental piece of a, of a, a good team. So I think all of those guys could kind of put themselves into the conversation for being kind of part of the next three to five years with, with strong years this year. So we'll see, but it's hard to see with the kind of the nucleus that they have now and some of the young players who will actually be playing at the major league level this year, you know, the, the makings of a, you know, their next wave of talent or however you would phrase it. I, most of those guys are probably still in the low minor leagues or have yet to be drafted. And if you're looking kind of at the next time the Royals maybe are looking to contend in, you know, 2021 or 2022 or whatever year you put on it. 
I know the the last thing I want to ask you, I know that the Royals lately have struggled a little bit to have starting pitcher depth, and they have not had that strong of a farm system. But one name that very quietly started to emerge, I haven't looked into him in depth. I know that he has a really interesting slider, but I've become pretty fascinated by Jake Junis, and I am essentially just curious what you might be able to provide on Jake Junis, because he looks like he, I mean, his his numbers last season in AAA were just outstanding. He came up and he held his own. He was better down the stretch in the major leagues, and no one ever seems to talk about him ever. I don't think I've even so much as read his name on the internet, except for when I've pulled up his player page. So what is going on with Jake Junis? Because he seems like he is certain to be in the rotation. Yeah, I mean, he's got a, he's an interesting guy from the start because he was drafted out of kind of cold weather Illinois. I think he's from like west of Chicago. And he was picked in like the 28th round, but it was the final year before he, the draft uh, compensation changed. So they signed him for over slot. So he was a, a talented player. And I, I think in their farm system, he was one of those guys that maybe is projects kind of as a four or five starter and has a lot of value, but maybe in, you know, prospect rankings and those services, those kind of guys kind of get lost in the shuffle because he's maybe has a little bit of a ceiling on what his talent is. He came up last year and like you mentioned, he has a very good slider. He has seemingly good composure on the mound. He has, uh, he's been relatively healthy in his career. So he reminds me of sort of like, a pitcher that would have pitched for the Minnesota Twins in like 2000, like seven or eight, or maybe <laughs> even or like before that, you know, um, like somebody in, in like just Kevin Slowey and Eric Loesch and all these guys just put him in their rotation and they'll throw strikes and be a decent pitcher. And to me, that's sort of what he seems like. I, I'm not sure that there is a lot of upside beyond kind of being a mid-level rotation starter, but that would certainly be a huge asset for the Royals if he can continue to perform like he did last year during his rookie year. All right, so we always wrap up these segments with the traditional torture device of the win total prediction. So give us your projected win total for the Royals in 2018. I, I think Bakota has the Royals at about 66 wins. I, I think that that's correct. Don't quote me on that. Yeah. They've traditionally uh, this, they've traditionally undersold them a little bit. This might be the year that they nail it on the dot. But I'm going to continue. To, <laughs> I'm going to continue to say that they are going to undersell the Royals just by a little bit. And so I will say, with the weak division with the Tigers and the White Sox in the Central, I'll say they finish 71 and 91. Right. Well, you can read Rustin at the KC Star. You can find him on Twitter at Rustin Dodd. Thank you very much for joining us. No, I appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah, thank you very much. Okay, one link to let you know about. Someone posted this in the Facebook group. One of the many genres of Mike Trout question we get is, what would Mike Trout hit in Lower League X? And we try to come up with hypothetical stats he would generate at that level. Well, Cam Kane, who is a sophomore at the University of Michigan, used the baseball sim out of the park to simulate Mike Trout's career in the Pecos League, which those of you who've read The Only Rules It Has to Work know is the lowest level of independent baseball. So essentially the lowest pro league in the U.S. In the Pecos League, Mike Trout plays until he's 50, wins 24 MVP awards, retires with a career slash line of 588, 735, 1133. That's a 350 WRC plus and about 786 war. <laughs> Not to mention a career earnings total of $44,500. <laughs> 
Pecos League players do not make much money. The best part, I think, is that on January 3rd, 2052, Mike Trout gets inducted into the Pecos League Hall of Fame. First ballot Hall of Famer, but only 97.9% of the vote. 2.1% just wouldn't give it to Mike Trout. Can't let anyone in on the first ballot. He also has hitting streaks of greater than 56 games five different times. I want to know about the six seasons when he doesn't win the MVP award. I guess he gets hurt. So a 4.2 walk to strikeout ratio at about 1,700 stolen bases. You can find this at msaber.com. I will post a link in the Facebook group and on the show page at Fangrass. Another reminder, you can find written season previews for each of the teams we talk about on these preview pods at our sister site, banishedtothepen.com, which was started by Effectively Wild listeners. You can also, thanks to a nifty little widget by Fangrass' Sean Dolinar, find links to every other team preview podcast from every team preview podcast post. Thanks to everyone who supported us on Patreon after my little plea the other day. If you haven't yet, please do at patreon.com slash effectively wild. And five listeners who have include Logan Vesey, Justin Dakotis, Suck a Free Podcast, Nicholas Allen, and Alexander Pietras. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. And you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast at fancrafts.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will get to those next time. Talk to you soon. I'll only take the brakes off if you do. And roll around like marbles on the floor. Please pick me up and roll me 